We all face some silent struggle, but trust me, you are not alone. I'm your host, MJ, and every week we break down a challenge, success, or struggle with someone who's also been through it. We learn from lived experience and love to share tools, resources, and concepts that might help you get off the struggle bus. Interested? Subscribe for more. Let's get into it. We're back, and we are here with Danny, who was with us on season one, and she's back again, because we have so much to talk about, as promised, and today's topic is toxic work environments. We've all been there, y'all. Working in the nonprofit sector, we have a very rounded experience. (laughs) Rounded experience in toxic work environments. And this is me coming from local government and nonprofits and national campaigns. But Danny's coming at it from a different angle. I'm coming from it from higher ed slash nonprofit world. And how has it been? A lot of these jobs in the nonprofit world, especially in advocacy, that work in social justice issues, especially now diversity or helping, especially in higher education, right? Helping first generation immigrant students, non-traditional students are seen as institutions of economic mobility. There is a tendency for these institutions to openly exploit its workers. I think in a similar way that multinational corporations do, but because they have these nonprofit or commendable goals to help people, many of the employees or people who are in the system justify the exploitation because they're able to say, I'm getting a low salary, but at least I'm fulfilling my dream, fulfilling my passion, and I'm helping people find their passion or I'm helping them with their education, what have you. This is why we wanted to talk about toxic work environments because so often they affect your bottom line as a person, not only financially, but mentally and even physically sometimes because- Oh, absolutely. Under that guise of we are doing good for the world, the exploitation like really takes over and it's so frustrating. You know, I'm so used to doing more with nothing or doing more with less. I'm suddenly in an office where we're not doing more with less because our senior leadership is traumatized by government and nonprofit. We wanted to bring into this new organization a work environment that actually thinks about the people because so often that doesn't exist in academia. Right. My angle of academia is way different from yours because, folks, let's remember, Danny has a doctorate. She has a PhD. She's doing the things. She's a professor. She's 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 credentialed. Eh. <laughs> Hopefully. That's the hope. I think it starts at the professor level. It starts as a graduate student. It starts when oh. you're in college and a professor tells you, oh, you're really smart. You should go to graduate school. And it assumes that everybody has this privilege to A, forego income. School is expensive, not because of the tuition, it's expensive because of what the opportunity cost is. Because instead of having a job that pays you 40, 50, $60,000 a year, you're foregoing that. And if you're in a non-PhD program, you're also going into debt for that. And oftentimes I think 
unfortunately we've pushed a lot of people who are like good college students and they're oh you're great you should go into academia and i feel very hesitant when mm. first generation immigrant even second generation immigrants ask me hey should i get a phd and i'm like no i always tell them no and i say mm. i don't think you should because this is this and this I had the privilege where I didn't have college debt. I'm not, I didn't have children at the time. I didn't have elder care. I didn't have any other responsibilities besides myself. I was very conscious that I'm foregoing income by doing graduate school. I was okay with that. But I think if I had, everybody has student loans, if I had a mortgage, if I had a child, if I had elder care, if I had health issues, if you have disability, Mm -hmm. Graduate school is not amenable. I was pushing back on going to grad school for literally 10 years. Like the only reason I ended up going to grad school was because I worked for the City University of New York and they were going to pay for part of grad school. <laughs> I advise students and mentor students as part of my job. And I have these freshmen, sophomores who are like, oh, I want to do master's. And I just ask them why. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, because I was told to. And I say, why do you want to get a master's degree? Oh, just because. And that's very dangerous to me. That idea, literally new people who were in PhD programs and master's programs, so they wouldn't have to start paying their student loans. I don't think student loans are bad. I think sometimes people put a morality in student loans, especially if you're a first generation college student, you need to really weigh the pros and cons financially. And in terms of your career trajectory, I was just teaching my students about is a college degree in 2023 still worth it? And when we look at the outcomes of the lifetime earnings of somebody who is making $45,000 a year with a college degree versus non-college degree, financially, they do make more money if you have a college degree. And the reasoning is you're better able to navigate economic downturns and you have lower unemployment in general because you have a degree. If you're a mechanic and then you lose your job, you can't just be a plumber. That doesn't work that way. Yeah. But with a college degree, somebody who's maybe working a desk job can get another desk job. So that's the idea behind it. So I think education does pay off, but I just really worry about those first gen students who literally don't know what they're doing. Not because it's their yeah, fault. Are you talking they're about just, us? <laughs> right. Girl, if I could go back in time, like, I knew I was very bad at STEM. I just had no interest in the hard sciences. I was interested in technology, but I didn't really know how to navigate that. I don't regret my choices. But when I look at my students, sometimes I just worry about them. And it's not a toxic work environment necessarily, but I think it's almost like setting them up for a toxic work environment. Because it's like, this job will pay my student loan, so I should just do it. You're so invested in like the potential of it, which yes. in theory is not wrong. Yeah. But we millennials, I'm talking to all of us here, we fell into that golden age of unpaid internships. Absolutely. For, and I'm so happy the babies get paid now. Because I was working full time at this organization. I was doing two internships like separately. Oh my God in the middle of going to school full-time at night. So that was my college experience and why it took me five years to graduate instead of the usual four, because my parents didn't pay for college. I was putting myself through college and also 
working my ass off to guarantee that I even had a job when I graduated. My public school, it was a thousand kids to one guidance counselor. Oh my gosh. Yes, I've learned a lot from being in toxic work environments. And this might be a different episode, but it took me years of therapy to realize that the toxic work environments were perpetuating the child abuse I endured when I was a kid. Oh, absolutely. It's like triggering the same, that same physical feeling. I remember volunteering for this organization and I was working weekends for free for them. Yeah. And for a long time, I remember, I'm like, why do I feel so bad after I leave? I really believe in their mission, but I feel like crap after I finish my shift. And then I realized that when I have a question, I'm dismissed. I'm not being listened to, which is very triggering when you're from a dysfunctional childhood. If you notice something and you're like, hey, this is not working. And then they just ignore that too. So it's like the dual that you're not being appreciated. You're not getting paid. Yeah, first of all. First of all, you're not getting paid. (laughs) But second of all, you're not being listened to. And I was somebody who like knew what I was talking about. This is not my first job. I was pretty well into my career when I was volunteering here. I was like crying uh, when I get home and my husband was just like, maybe you should just stop. Because they're not helping you. You had a goal when you were volunteering and you bet that they're not willing to support you. They're not appreciating you as a person and you're great. And I think you should stop. And I thought about that for a while. And then he convinced me to stop because it was just so toxic. I shouldn't be crying after a shift. No. That's not normal. You shouldn't be crying. You shouldn't be having panic attacks. You shouldn't be like you, in theory should be able to leave work at work and function as a normal human being at home. Yeah. And again, it's these occupations that you're helping people. So I talk to a lot of social workers, Mm -hmm. therapists, or academia. Oh my God, professors, we really are, it's like, you're not even getting paid, barely making like median wage in the United States. And yet I am probably one of the better paid professors at my level. I'm part of these academic mom groups on Facebook and they talk about how they can't pay rent. Yeah. Like they have four full-time jobs. Their job doesn't pay enough for rent. People have to be able to pay their bills in order to do good work. When I was working at Civic College, I knew people that were teaching five, six, seven classes who were adjuncts. I knew another lecturer who had 800 students and is getting paid like $35,000 a year. And this is higher education. A lot of this is because of the privatization of higher education and how instead of hiring somebody as a tenure track faculty, higher education is like, oh, adjuncts are willing to work for much cheaper with no Mm -hmm. benefits, with no retirement, with no health insurance. I remember I was getting paid for a three credit course, $3,200 with a master's degree, mind you. I had a master's degree. And then I remember thinking to myself after that one year of adjuncting, I'm never doing this again. Yeah. I don't care if I have to work in service industry or retail. This is so exploitative. And the saddest thing is people who should be working in higher ed are choosing not to. Ironically, it's so expensive to work in higher ed. For these jobs that have that cover of you're doing good, you're helping the world, you're building the next generation, right? It's so easy to fall into that trap of the work is not ideal, but... 
I'm fulfilling my own purpose. Yeah. Taking a step back, how do you spot a toxic work environment? Ooh. At what point do you spot it and say, okay, clearly yeah. I'm in one? So there's different levels of toxicity, I think. Because mm-hmm. when you think toxic work environment, you think somebody's screaming at you, like throwing objects. Doesn't but it have can to be, be that blatant, people. <laughs> right. Like very overt. A bystander would be like, oh, that is a toxic work environment. Yeah. But it can be simple things like, oh, you have vacation days, but the culture in the university is nobody really takes them like I remember I was talking with a colleague of mine and they were saying that they've never used their sick days and when they had COVID that was the first time ever that they've used sick days and they've been in academia forever because the culture badge of honor (laughs) talking with non-academics and being exposed to a different kind of life where you know especially academia right these are like high achieving obsessed people i'm willing to take one for the team we're pretty obsessed with what we do in our jobs because you have to be right yeah but people think it's a badge of honor that you're responding to an email at three in the morning oh you're wild up at three in the morning it's amazing <laughs> yeah i literally remember in grad school i would email a professor 11 p.m at night on a friday i'm not expecting a response i just wanted to send it because at the time now you can send timed email so it'll you can write on a friday and then it'll send on monday at the time when i was in grad school that wasn't a thing yeah and then she responded within five minutes and i'm like you have two children why are you awake (laughs) because she has two children yeah (laughs) no they're older though they're not like toddlers they were like eight and eleven or something i don't know this is us speaking as toddler moms right now (laughs) yeah i'm like no no no, not toddler moms toddler moms is like who knows but Yeah. And I remember thinking, wow, and that's so strange. It doesn't have to be overt, like throwing things. Or if you have young children and you have to leave work earlier because you have to pick them up from school and you're being viewed as like the less productive member of the team, even though you meet all of the team's goals, you do all the, you put in as many hours as everybody else. It's just that you have to leave a little bit earlier and you make up the work later. So that's, to me, is a toxic workplace because they're not supporting you as a whole person. We're not just workers, right? I think a workplace is not toxic if it sees you holistically and if it's ignoring that fact. When you hear the saying, working moms are expected to work like they don't have children and then they're expected to have children like they don't have jobs. If those two things are not being acknowledged that we have different responsibilities. And I think especially during and after COVID, a lot of our jobs can be done remotely. There's no reason for me to be in person if I'm meeting what I need to do at my own time, then that should be fine. I see this with a lot of my tech friends quit their jobs because the tech industry wanted them to be in person. And they were like, nope. (laughs) Like why? Academia is not like mandating coming back in person. They're allowing you to be hybrid. A lot of students, especially working students, love online classes. Mm. So they're asking for more online classes. But the university loses a lot of money if everybody is online. It's a business, right? Again, the people act like nonprofit means they're like Mother Teresa. (laughs) They're still a business. Our outgoing president makes $350,000 a year. That's a lot of money. People think, oh, because he's not Jeff Bezos, therefore they have better intentions. The institution of academia is a business because they need students to be in school for dorms. 
because you get a lot of money from dorms and meal plans. And this is a problem throughout the United States is that administrators are pushing faculty to do more with less. Yeah. And just there's tech in the tech world. There's a lot of layoffs. There's also a lot of budget cuts being made in higher ed with states investing less and less in public education. So where do the universities have to make up that difference? So where do they do it? They increase tuition, right? And they have to cut faculty at times or cut like any reassigned time for faculty. When it comes to faculty, I'm sure you have a friend group, like a professor friend group that you text and you're like, is this job legit? What's the situation on this campus? Are there like existing communities of professors that are giving the inside scoop to each other? Because I think about this in political terms, of course, because we have Dear White Staffers, check out insidevoices.io, right? Because that's for the tech companies. And they actually also allow coverage for nonprofits. I know people for a fact are like thinking about writing the review and I'm like, write it. Write it. What is it in college when you're a student? Rate my professors. Yeah. What's the equivalent yeah. for professors who are working? Like rate the damn school. Like, do I even right. want to work here? Right. That's a great question. So you have to remember, Maria, if you're hired as a tenure track faculty, you're working with these people for the rest of your working life. Like it's tenure. Like the only uh, way they can get rid of you is if you quit. And so doesn't people, that perpetuate the bad work environment? Absolutely. Oh. Absolutely. So there's, I'm very lucky that I've been going to conferences. So I know people outside of my grad program. So you, that's how you meet other people. And then they know other people in other departments. So it's very difficult to gauge Unless you know somebody on the inside. It's very difficult. Yes. So it's very dangerous, actually. So with the Me Too movement, there were a lot of faculty outing other tenured faculty. Imagine that. These are already people who are respected in their field. They're secure. They can't get fired. And it took them 20 years to say, this person assaulted me when I was a young person. Damn, when people say academia moves slow, it's it's not a joke. Or there's also, I've heard of students, grad students have ideas, and then their mentors will just steal it. I've heard of that. I've definitely heard that. Straight up steal it, copy it, name it something else. There was, yeah, it, academic Twitter is probably the most exciting. <laughs> for acad- We're pretty boring people. Like, so academic Twitter, and you, you read all of the things that happened And I'm like, wow, that's crazy. I think it's becoming more common for people to openly say, hey, this happened to me a year ago. I just want to put it out there. And even then, there's no protections for faculty, right? So if somebody will sexually harass college students, they just move to a different institution. Title IX doesn't follow them, doesn't protect them. Wow, so even accountability is questionable. So there's a lot of opportunity in academia because of how hierarchical it is and how exploitative it is by nature. So as somebody who's working in these environments, do you have any tips on how to make the situation work for you is the first part of the question when you're in a toxic work environment. So I think there's different levels. So if you're a grad student, you're at the bottom of the totem pole what they do is they just push through they just finish their degree as fast as humanly possible 
they change their dissertation chairs, which is a huge no-no, by the way, because again, egos are big in academia. And (laughs) the people who are more tenured have more power in terms of they are editors in journals or they know the editors in journals or it's very incestuous. So everyone's friends with everybody. So you have to be very careful who you make enemies with. If you're going to burn a bridge, you better make sure you don't plan to go back into that field. Okay. And people will say, if they're trying to hire somebody, they'll ask, hey, I saw that so-and-so worked in your department. How are they as a person? Personally, I made friends outside of my department. I had friends outside of academia. I moved away from my school where I went to graduate school. And I think that helped me a lot because it just reoriented what was important to me. And I, I was... Like, okay, why am I doing this? Why do I want this three letters after my last name? I had a lot of mentors. I was really lucky with my academic experience because I had so many mentors. People literally just sending me their, I'm like, hey, I'm applying for this thing. And I'm just talking about what I'm doing. And they say, oh, applied for that and got it last year. You should email them. And I would email the person, don't even know who they are. And the person would say, sure. And just give me their application to help me with mine. So I don't think it's all bad. I think it's just much harder to have what my experience was. Definitely speaking to the importance of building your community around you, no matter where you are, because you need the inside strategy and the outside strategy, because you need to coordinate with the peers that are going through the trenches of the toxic work environment with you, but then also folks who are out of it or who have moved out of it. So figuring out their how is also helpful. I think I looked it up one time. I don't know, remember the year anymore. It was maybe like 2017, 2016. Every year, about 700 people graduate with a PhD in sociology. Do you know how many jobs there are? Like 30. Oh. It's a lottery. It is literally a lottery that if you get an interview, I would celebrate that because it meant that I beat out at least 200 people for this interview. And then if I got a a campus visit, even if I didn't get the offer, I would just celebrate that because I'm like, this means that was able to beat out this many people and just trying to find joy. And I know everybody wants an academic job, especially I think if you were like me, like my dream was to be a professor. But then I got to the point when I was finishing up my grad program, I said, you know what? It's okay if I'm not a professor because at the end of the day, I'm going to do work that's important to me, that's going to help me pay my bills, and I'm going to do work that I believe in because I have the privilege to. I don't have student loans, so I'm like, I can literally do whatever I want. And at the time, like, we didn't have any big financial responsibilities. We were renters. We didn't have child. I think that's a very different set of options. I just kept it open, and I said, whatever happens, I think it literally, I was at the right place at the right time. I was on the market right when Black Lives Matter happened. So suddenly all these universities had reactionary positions for diversity, Asian American studies, whereas 10 years ago, you would have one position in the country every year. Thinking of it in context of 700 PhDs graduate a year, but then there's only 30 jobs, that is something to celebrate. Yeah. That you're able to cut through the noise and and even be interviewed by that institution is important locally here in Jersey. There's a community college that has all these adjunct and like professor openings. And I just, I can't help but wonder why are there so many 
available jobs. And in this conversation, I'm realizing it's because there's just the pay inequity. And also we're dealing with a pandemic and folks who should be or who would benefit the students wouldn't even consider an academia job because it's never my dream to be a professor. It's like a passing thought. (laughs) I can host a workshop by all means, right? But put me in a room with 30 students? I don't know. It fascinates me that the state of education in this country and higher education is so contentious. And even with all that happening, being a professor seems so like cagey and competitive. When oh, it's like cutthroat. Th- it's like wolves. I'm not like that because I'm, I'm on my own pace and I don't know. It just, it works for me. And I think I'm just burned out from burning all ends of the candle, right? Like after doing it for so long, when you're in college, doing that from college, grad school onward, I think I just was just like, it's like, I'm done. I can't do it anymore. I can't work 60 hours. I can't work weekends anymore. I can't work nights. Like my body was just like, nope not happening a lot of these conversations are happening in higher ed now especially because of covid right like a lot of the working moms the professor moms had to navigate having children at home with no child care and being there for their students so we lost a lot of mothers in the workforce but especially in academia where you don't know if people are going to get a tenure track line it could take years, right? It, take, it takes a year to hire somebody. So it could take years if you get a tenure track line. And the people who are able to wave out the pandemic are white people. So it's just white people. And there's so many second generation academics in academia. It's ridiculous. Oh, my grandfather was a professor and my dad too. And I'm just like, why? I'm a first generation college student. <laughs> like my mom didn't even understand the education system here. I have pretty bad class evaluations because a lot of my time is emails, right? So I just put in my syllabus. I'm like, sorry, I have a 72, unless it's an emergency, I have a 72 hour email policy because if I responded to the amount of emails that I had every day, I wouldn't get any work done. It would just be emails all day, every day. And a lot of students don't like that because I think a lot of their education right there's this oh send an email 10 minutes later get a response and i tell them look i get so many emails i have a life chill i'll get to it don't worry a lot of academics now are pushing back on that on Mm. on this idea that like you have to almost sacrifice your sanity in order to do your job we're not paid enough to do that dude correct correct like quiet quitting it's not quite quitting. You're just working your wage. <laughs> exactly. Let's close out with this then. What is your line in the sand? What is the point where you're like, okay, I've tolerated enough of this toxic work environment. I am now enacting my exit plan. That's the one benefit of being an academic because you have to be, especially if you're not from an Ivy League, right? Like I have a lot of colleagues who work in Ivy Leagues and private schools. They just literally get money thrown at them. They're like, here, study whatever you want to study. You don't even have to apply for a grant. We'll like? just give you like 50K. Literally give you $50,000. Yeah. And meanwhile, I'm like applying for every grant that's out there, right? So I think recognizing that because you're from struggle, you're basically entrepreneurial by nature. And I think a lot of people in academia underplay their skills 
especially if you have quantitative skills. I'm a qualitative researcher. Tech companies are always looking for qualitative researchers to make sense of the data that they have. Thinking in terms of your skill set, not just in academia, but teaching people. You can teach people outside of the classroom. You're not trapped in higher ed. So thinking about other opportunities, it's more of a matter of learning how to market yourselves to other positions. Thinking about, hey, I do public speaking multiple times a week. Mm-hmm. I manage multiple projects because I was working my dissertation. I was working this person. I was volunteering for this person. I was applying for grants. I was doing this, applying for jobs, doing that. So thinking about that in terms of project management, as opposed to, oh, they're just all the things I have to do. You're able to take your academia life and transfer it elsewhere because those jobs do exist and people need to make sense out of things. <laughs> I would also be careful about if you want to make an exit plan. Make sure your exit plan is something you're interested in, and you want to vet it because you don't want to leave a toxic environment only to jump in another toxic environment. Yeah, you want to take some time and think of your next move. I found that Glassdoor is really helpful to get a sense of corporations, companies, schools, and again, even if you look at higher ed, like Glassdoor at the college, it has to be somebody in that department, in that level. So. I'm an assistant professor. Somebody who's an associate professor has a very different experience. So you almost have to talk to somebody who's at the same level as you versus somebody who's a full professor. They've been there for 30 years. They don't even know anything. Yeah. When I'm applying to jobs, right, I will try to talk to the assistant. I will try to talk to somebody who's at the same level, but a different department, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So often your lived experience is different when you're the manager versus when you're the oh, totally. Yeah. Definitely applies across all sectors. Yeah, look at the turnover rate. Oh, turnover yeah. Turnover rate is really important. Yeah, yeah, if they're always hiring, there's a problem. <laughs> all right, thanks for the tips, dropping gems as usual. You're so welcome. <laughs> I always love talking to you. Me too, girl. <laughs> Catch everybody next time. Bye.